things in Jesus' name. The one that we are to set our sights onto and pursue, thank and worship. Someday that Lord Jesus is going to come back for us, his church, his bride. So we greet you in that name this morning. I could actually go home and I would have been fed today. Thank you for all you that part of the service. So, um, we'll look to the Lord for some more, some more for us. I trust that He has some more for us. It's a couple days before Christmas Day, so I thought I would have a message sort of down that direction. Jesus is the reason for the season. They say that's a little, um, what do you call that quote? But it's another name for it. But it's much, much deeper than that. I like this saying better. He became one of us so we could become like him. I like that better. It's a little deeper. More meaningful. And that's exactly our focus this morning. God incarnate in us is the message title. God incarnate in us. But before we move ahead and can, if you can just stand for a word of prayer before we move into the message, let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your blessings. Thank you for what you've given to us this morning. Lord, we look to you. We ask you, Lord, to minister to us this morning by your spirit, by your power, by your inspiration, by your truth, by your grace. Lord, we ask you, Lord, we are plead with you that you would um, inspire us and move us and guide us. We thank you this morning also, Lord, for what you have done, what you've done in the past, and we trust you are doing now, and we believe that you will continue to do in the future. So we worship you this morning also, and thank you for your goodness to us. And I pray, Lord, you would also help this poor messenger with a stammering tongue to be able to communicate the eternal truths of your word the uh, reality and uh, the, the soberness, the uh, the uh, all the um, implications that go with taking your word and the responsibility that comes with it. I pray, Lord, you would be with me as well. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I did a very small survey, a very unscientific survey amongst us. And I asked this question in this very unscientific survey. I said, what does the word incarnate mean? Or what is the incarnation? 
And the response that I got from that is I believe our understanding of the incarnation is about on par with our understanding of reincarnation, which maybe actually reincarnation is a little higher from my unscientific survey. So I thought, well, maybe, maybe that's not good. Maybe, uh, I, I understand. I believe we understand the concept. But I thought, well, maybe, why don't we just study the incarnation? And, and then go beyond the incarnation and what the purpose of the incarnation is. Now, you might be asking, well, what's so important about learning this phrase? I mean, I have diapers to change. I have bills to pay. There's refugees that are hungry in the world. There is a whole lot that's wrong with this world. Why do we spend a whole morning on incarnation? Aren't there more important things to be talked about and issues to solve? Actually, there are many practical problems in this world that need answers. But the incarnation is a foundational truth that connects to these practical issues. You cannot properly understand salvation or the Christian life without it. It's an integral part of the human experiment or or, um experience. So let's start with definitions. One definition of incarnation is a it's it, incarnation is a real or a concrete expression of an abstract concept. The world we are in a world that is filled with abstract concepts, okay? Take for example Goodness. Who would like to come up and put in my hand goodness? That I can hold it, see it. It's a concept that we can understand, but you don't, you can't, you don't, can't have it in that sense. But here's one word how the word incarnation is used. She is the incarnation of goodness. In her, the concept of goodness takes it takes a form that you can see. You can actually experience it. So that's one aspect of incarnation. You take an It's a real or concrete expression of an abstract concept. Another use of the word incarnation, this is right out of the dictionary, is the embodiment of a deity or spirit in some earthly form. And this is a similar concept as the goodness, except instead of a concept, it's a spirit. And, and spirit is, I mentioned before, spirit is not matter. Spirit is not a physical property. You can't hold it. You can't see it. 
You can't measure it. You can't see its form. You can't weigh it. Spirit is a being in a different form. But when a spirit takes on a body or, or some form, it becomes incarnate. And that's where actually the word reincarnation comes in at. Reincarnation is when supposedly a spirit gets embodied many different times in a different body. That's reincarnation. The spirit lives on, but it lives in different bodies. So what is the incarnation, which is the topic this morning? It's is God who is a spirit taking the form of a man. That is the incarnation. It is God becoming a real living flesh and blood human being. Jesus is God incarnate. Now you say, is that taught in the word of God? Yeah, it is. <laughs> Very much so. And we're just going to, it's, it's all over, but we're going to look at a few. You can turn to John chapter 1. We'll just look at one passage here where it's it's very clear. John chapter 1, starting at verse 1. We'll read two verses, then we'll drop, drop down to verse 14. And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Now, we understand that that is the Logos, that is the Lord Jesus. That's the second, the second part of the Godhead is the Word. The Word was with God. Down at verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. God became incarnate. And I'm going to read one verse in Isaiah, and then we'll turn to Matthew. In Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall his call his name Emmanuel. So you can now turn to Matthew chapter 1. Verse 20 to 23. And this is in Joseph was in this dilemma with a, with a, uh, his espouse wife was expecting before they came together. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted God with us. So here we have God 
the eternal God, the uncreated being. That God that created the world, that hovered over the waters at the beginning, and that God that said, let us make man in our image, that God then left his place in glory and became a man. He became a real person. But he didn't come as a king. Nor did he come in wealth. Nor did he come as someone special. Now you think if the eternal God, the only uncreated being that there ever was, would become a man, he would be a special man. Well, he was special, but not in the way that we think of greatness and majesty. He was a regular baby so much so that the angels when the when the angels came to the shepherds and said that the savior is born he had to give him a sign and said you will find and how you will know that this is the one is he will be wrapped in swaddling strips of cloth that's what they were they were strips of cloth is what they wrapped in that's what swaddling clothes is he didn't have any onesies they didn't have any any that thing they just wrapped him up And you will find him wrapped up in those cloths and he will be laying in a manger, which is unusual. So there was a sign and said, that's the one. No other special sign. He was just a common baby. And the song that we sang this morning actually says it. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. That's in a nutshell, that whole topic. So, the God who, who dwells in unapproachable light, no man can approach God because he's so, so glorious that God came and was approached. He was veiled. He's now there lying as a baby. He laid aside metaphorically his kingly robes and took on the form of a servant, basically a servant's apron later in life. So you might say, well, that's all nice, but we are still in the day of training children and paying bills and of suffering refugees and of all the things that's wrong with the world. So how does, how does, what does that all mean to me? Well, this event, It's an event that is foundational for the answers of this world. So let's explore that thought. Why did Jesus come into the world? Why did he become a man? We all know the standard answer. Jesus came into the world to die on the cross to redeem me from my sins so that I can go to heaven after I die. That's a standard answer, and it's, it is true. It's, just, it's true. In, God, in GodQuestion.org, uh, about the incarnation, they say here, I'll read a, a, quote, a couple quotes from there. He said, there it says, the purpose of the incarnation was not to taste food or feel sorrow talking about Jesus coming. 
The Son of God came in the flesh in order to be the Savior of mankind. First, it was necessary to be born under the law, Galatians 4.4, because all of us have failed to fulfill God's law. Christ came in the flesh under the law to fulfill the law on our behalf. Secondly, it was necessary for the Savior to shed his blood for the forgiveness of sin. It's in Hebrews 9.22. A blood sacrifice, of course, requires a body of flesh and blood. And this was God's plan for the incarnation. And this is the plan. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering under the old covenant you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. This is in Hebrews 10.5. So without the incarnation, Christ could not really die and the cross would be meaningless. And that is the gospel in a nutshell. But for, unfortunately, many Christians, that's the totality of the gospel. When we believe, we are saved. Now, the Protestants, evangelicals, they, especially conservative ones, emphasize this fact extensively. That Christ came to die for our sins. And to them, it's very important that you believe the right things about God. You must believe that he was God in flesh. You must believe that he died for your sins. You must believe he was sinless. He was born of a virgin. Um, he, he, he died and he rose again and he's coming back. And all those things, you must believe that. You must believe that. It's very important that you believe that. And it is. <laughs> it is. The em- this emphasis is on what Christ did for us. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Because we were lost and we were in bondage, when we were separated from God, both by our sins and by our nature. And we needed to be bought back from the enemy, the devil. Because the devil had us in his clutches. It's like Jesus said, and a strong man, he keeps his house, his being, his, his possessions are secure. The devil was a strong man, and we were his household, and we were secure in the devil's clutches. Until a stronger than he came and took out the strong man and took the spoil from the strong man. So, that's what Christ came to do. Now, the Anabaptists historically, and and there's other Christians too, but the Anabaptists historically and to some degree still emphasize what Christ does in us. Not denying what Christ does for us, but there's another emphasis what Christ does in us. Their emphasis is the outworking of the Christ's life in a Christian. Christ came to redeem us so that we could please him in our everyday lives and fulfill his will for us. And I guess we could say this morning that Christ came so that we could run the race 
with abandon. <laughs> and we can do it in a way that was not done before Christ came. He came to save his people from their sin. We read that scripture, not in their sin, but from it. Okay, here's an example, and you can turn to um, an example of the different emphasis. You can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to look at the two emphasis, what Christ did for us, and not specifically what Christ did in us, but the expectation of what happens after that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in the last verse of chapter 5. For he hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now this is a very popular verse that is used by, by many people when they are sharing to an unbeliever what what the cross is about, what Jesus is about, how to be saved. It describes our salvation. Christ, the sinless one, took our sin on him. And then we who believe are accounted righteous before God. I use this verse many times to show to people, to quote it to people, that salvation is received through Christ and not by our works. You can't work your way into heaven. Christ came. He came to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That is a precious, beautiful, evangelical verse. Salvation verse. It describes the atonement in a nutshell. And it's at the end of the chapter, and so we stop. Now, the original manuscript did not have chapters or verses. They had, the letter was a letter, just like we read a letter. You don't, when you write a letter, do you put chapters and verses in it? No, we don't. Chapters and verses are simply for uh, convenience so we know where to go. Say, I could have said this more. Now, let's go into the, about the middle of the second Corinthians letter, the letter, the second, the second letter to the Corinthians. Let's go about in the middle. Let's look at this sentence here. That's what I would do this morning. We wouldn't have verses. But it goes on as a, as a, as a conclusion in chapter six. Uh, not a conclusion, but as a, an outgrowth of chapter, uh, the verse, the verse we just read. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. Here Paul is putting the church and us on the same level as him. We then, as workers together. So he's putting everyone together here. He said, we have received the righteousness of God. That's what he just got done saying. We might be made the righteousness of God in him. But, This righteousness of God is not just a righteousness that gets put in your account and stays in heaven. The righteousness of God has come in you. It could say a righteousness of God has become incarnate 
in you. You have been born again. You've been born from above. You've been given a new heart. You have received the Holy Spirit. All that is the righteousness of God that's been given to you. And you got it through Christ. And that's what Jesus came to do. To provide you and me with God's righteousness. So just as goodness is a concept, righteousness is a concept. But how do you know what's righteous unless you can see it? You have become or are to become the embodiment of God's righteousness in the world. Righteousness incarnate. That's what Christians are. Righteousness incarnate. And that has been the Anabaptist emphasis. Paul calls that the grace of God. He said, beseech you that receive not the grace of God in vain. So the new birth, the, um, the new heart, the Holy Spirit, all that is the grace of God. Like Strong says, it's the divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in the life. That's what grace is. It's an influence and a reflection. But Paul says that you, or that we, can receive it in vain. God can give it to you, but it doesn't become incarnate. It doesn't come out of our life. We have received that grace, but it was in vain. It did not have the desired outcome. Now, as I try to understand how to, how to explain this, I'm going to use a, I'm going to use a checking account. I'm going to use a financial example. You have a checking account in the bank. You have a bank account, but it is overdrawn and you have no money and you have a lot of bills. You have the mortgage bill, you have the electric bill, you have credit card bills, you have medical bills, and you have interest that's incurring. You're facing eviction from your home, you have no money, and you have no ability to repay. You had no, you had no prospects of finding the resources to fill in the hole that you're in. You are facing financial ruin. That is exactly where every single person in this world is, facing financial ruin before a God. Then we hear of a rich person. He has what we don't have, and that is lots of money. And you, if you meet certain conditions, he will put a large amount of money into your bank account. Enough of money to pay off all your bills. So you fill out the proper paperwork and it happens. Instead of being overdrawn, the bank account, you have lots of money in your account. More than enough to pay all your bills. So now what do you do next? 
you go around and you tell everybody, I have, I have lots of money in the bank. I like to see that nine with all those zeros behind it. You tell everyone that this man put lots of money in my bank account and I'm a rich man. And you feel really, really good about it. You can tell people how much money you have. It's an eternal amount. I mean, I, it, it goes, it's, I'm going to heaven with it. So, and you can tell people about it. You are rich and you feel rich, but you don't write a check and use that money to pay your bills. What do you think happens with your life? When you, when the mortgage, when the mortgage company calls you and says they need payment, what do they want to hear? No, what do they want? (laughs) They want you to tell them, oh, I got lots of money in the bank. (laughs) No, they don't want to hear that. They don't even want to hear that the check's in the mail. That's, 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 that's no good either. (laughs) They want the money transferred from that account into their account. That's what they want. And nothing short of that will be of any value. If you don't write a check and authorize some of that money to go from your account to their account, you have received that money in vain. But did you know it does you no good? Because you will still be evicted out of your house. You still will be cut off electricity. But that doesn't matter if you don't have a house, right? (laughs) Um, Receiving the money in vain. That abstract money in the bank account does not do the concrete things in your life. There is little evidence that you actually are rich. You can say so. You can act so. But there's little evidence that you are rich. You still get the bill collector calls. You're not able to provide the basic necessities for your family. So what good is all that money if you don't use it? So the main point this morning beyond explaining the incarnation of Christ is this. Christ became one of us. So that we could become one with him. Or maybe we could say this. Christ became one of us so that he could make us to be like him. In every way. In our worldview. In our values. In our submission. In our compassion. In our steadfastness to the truth. In our purity. In our forgiveness. This outworking is the riches. The grace of God. Becoming evident in our life we are actually rich now how can i demonstrate this from scripture well let's let's look and i want to explain to get really in there about the incarnation of christ let's first look how christ identifies with us and we're going to look in hebrews chapter 2 it's a long passage we're going to read a good part of the chapter And we're going to break in at verse 6. And the Hebrew writer 
is trying to lift up the Lord Jesus over the temple sacrifices that they had come from. So in verse 6, but one in a certain place, this is an Old Testament passage. It's actually actually Psalms chapter 8 if you want to read it. One in a certain place testified saying, what is man that thou art mindful of him or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor. And thou didst set him over the works of thy hand. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all things in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. And as you go in in uh, Psalms 8, you would see the cattle and the creeping things and the birds. And God gave man to be everything in the world is subject to man. That's what he means here. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Oh, there's a problem. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, or it's fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth Jesus and they that are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Saying, and some more quotes from the Old Testament, I will declare thy name among my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God has given me. For as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. That's the incarnation. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver them through who fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And I think we'll stop there. We could go on to the rest of the verse, but we got the essence of what I want there. The Lord Jesus, I mean, there is there is so much in this verse. We'll just have to pick up a few in these, chap, in these verses, but we'll just pick up a few things. First, I want to bring out that Christ calls us, his people, brethren. Actually, that word brethren is actually um, a generic term. It's actually could be translated siblings. Christ calls us siblings to him. We have become part of the family through Christ. So we have a strong identity with Christ. And and there in verse Let me see. Oh, he that for both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. And that actually means that that one is actually the Father. So the Lord Jesus has the same Father that we have. Jesus is the only begotten son, and we are adopted 
sons and daughters. And, and then we have those words, sanctifieth. Who sanctifieth? It the Lord sanctifieth. And who is sanctified? It's us. There we see the concept of Christ's money going into our account. That's what that is saying. The sanctifier, the Lord Jesus, sanctified us. He put that money into our account. And for which cause he's not ashamed to call them brethren could mean he's not ashamed to call us siblings. One is by natural birth. Well, I don't know if you really call Jesus a natural birth, but he was a blood relationship to the Father versus we are adopted. Christ became one of us so he could bring us into his own family under one father. And that's exactly what the father wanted him to do. Now we can see, begin to see the broadening concept of Christ's coming. He did what he did for us. But what he did for us brought us in in a new environment and he is, it is changing us. It's intended to change us. Now, both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are, are, uh, let me say it this way, to sanctify means simply to set apart as holy. We are no longer common. We're no longer defiled. We're now set apart with Christ. Christ is the one who does that. Those who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus, he sets apart as holy. And they become his adopted brothers. And there is no other way to become a child of God than this way. This is the way. Now, before we merge the lines too much, we have to keep something straight. We have to emphasize something else. Let's say it this way. The Lord Jesus is our elder brother. He is one of us. We're part of the family. But we are not God's. We have to uh, have to make sure because there is a certain the name it and claim it belief system elevates man to become basically a junior brother of Christ with the same kind of powers. Uh, they call it the jab it and grab it type of people, where you can speak your experience into existence. You can speak it. You can be like God. You can speak and it happens. That's an elevation of man that is wrong. And I like to just read uh, Colossians 1.18 just to get a little bit perspective on just this one point. Very short. Colossians 1.18. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning. He's the beginning. The firstborn from the dead that in all things he might have the preeminence. The Lord Jesus is preeminent, and we must never merge the, the, the glory and the majesty of the Lord Jesus. Even, even as he brings us into our family and there's that element of truth, we don't want to merge those two things. Okay. So Christ has identified 
with us and brought us into the family so that we could be like him. We could receive the same resources that he did while he was on this earth. So how does this work out in real life? Turn to 1 John chapter 3. And we'll start reading at verse 1. We'll read verse 1 to 3 at this section here. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Isn't this there again? Here we're the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man, or all, that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. We are now the sons of God. That's the same concept as we read back there in Hebrews. We're part of the family. We're adopted with Jesus being the elder brother. All that have this hope or this expectancy to see him and be part of his glorious body, they purify themselves just as Christ is pure. Now, it's interesting. Purifieth and pure come from the same root word as the word sanctifieth and sanctify in Hebrews. It's a different variation, but it's the same root word. It's just a different um, variation. I don't know the word for it. I can't think right now. So, only there, Christ is doing the sanctifying and the setting apart. Here, we are called to sanctify and set apart. Christ came to set us apart with him, and now we are to set ourselves apart with Christ. And this, this concept is in scripture all over. Here, the setting apart, us setting ourselves apart as pure and as holy is the response of those who have a living expectation of the those who are the sons of God and are expecting Jesus to return. It's a response of those who know they are a part of the family of God. It's the normal, it's the expected response. And could I say it's the required ex- response. It's not optional. That money in your account is to be used to pay the debts that you have occurred in your life. Now, John, the whole book of John is actually uh, the, the letter of First John, I should say, is a letter that's given to divide the real Christians from the false Christian. That's what the purpose of that whole book is. It's, it's interesting to read it that way. So he goes on in verse four. 
to 6. I will read a few more verses. Whosoever committeth sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Well, so much for the elimination of law for the Christian in the age of grace. <laughs> what do we do with that one? Sin is the transgression of the law. And you know that he was manifested, incarnated, to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. That's what we read in, in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. Whosoever abideth in him is part of the family, sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him nor known him. There is a parallel passage that I like to read. You don't have to turn there, but it's a very familiar one in First Peter. First Peter 1, 14 to 17. It's just a parallel passage. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. A quote from the Old Testament. And if you call on the Father, that's our Father, our common Father, who without respect of persons judges to every man's work past the time of your sojourning here in fear. So there we have a similar, very same emphasis. A Father, we have a Father, we've been called by a sinless Jesus, and we'll be called to be like him. And the glorious part of the gospel, the glorious part of the gospel is that the Lord Jesus Christ hath, has wiped, he has, what's the, um, can't think of the proper phrases here, but the, the strong man that has had us in his household the, Jesus has wiped him out and has freed us. So the glorious part of the gospel is that we actually have the ability to rise up and to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus in, in righteousness. We are free to rise up and to follow our Lord. So, Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He is the Holy Sinless, eternal God, Son of God, he became living, tangible flesh. And he fought that devil, hand-to-hand combat, and he won, and the spoils gave us the deliverance and the freedom and the victory. He shares, he shares the victory that he got. He shares it with us when we enter into his life. See, all the victory that the Lord Jesus got when he was on earth and fought the devil the whole way to death, the victory that he won becomes our victory. Not only does he give us that victory, but he gives us of his own power and life that he had while he was on earth with the same Holy Spirit. There is an unfamiliar verse in Hark the Herald Angels Sing. That is not in our book. That We did not sing it this morning. I wish it were there. But I thought I would read it. 
is it come, desire of nations, come, the Lord Jesus, fix in us thy humble throne. Rise, the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. So the woman's conquering seed is the Lord Jesus Christ, and the song is saying, Lord Jesus, rise in us, and then bruise that serpent's head that is in us. Adam's likeness now efface, that means erase or eliminate. Adam's likeness eliminate. Stamp thine image in its place, in Adam's place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. You know, Charles Wesley, who wrote that song, knew exactly, exactly what I am trying to say this morning. That is exactly what it is. The Lord Jesus came, and he came to bring that deliverance in us. It expressly describes a loaded bank account with the expectation that it is to be spent in real life. You've got to have that loaded bank account, by the way. You can't pay your bills. You don't have what it takes. We need the Lord Jesus. We needed someone to save us. We are not saved by our works. So, now you can change diapers in the victory of the battle won from the devil. Now you can pay your bills in freedom. Now you can care for or support the refugees like Jesus would. We are Jesus incarnate. We have become or are to become, are to be the embodiment of Christ's righteousness in this world. What Christ has won for us and what he has dumped into us, we are to express in our world. Righteousness incarnate, holy like Jesus, sanctified like Jesus, pure like Jesus. Do you say something like that, Myron, this morning already? It's real. Couple questions. Doesn't that bring us around to a work salvation? The cry of those who say you must believe and all you need to do to be saved is to believe would say if you require something from somebody, that's legalism. That's a work salvation. If anything is required besides believing, required, oh, you should. But if anything is required besides believing, the gospel is corrupted. You are preaching a work salvation. And I would say, no, not a work salvation, but a salvation that works. And you've got to have that. But if you put this expectation of performance on people, they will feel guilty when they don't measure up 
to what they think they should. Is that true? It is. <laughs> that can't be a good thing. That can't be grace. It can't be grace to make people feel guilty when they don't measure up. No, that is not your definition of grace, which exists only of forgiveness and the overlooking of sin. So do we fail? Do we not measure up to our understanding of God's will? Yes and yes, we do. But there is grace, and here is the gospel. There is more money in the bank to pay for that bill also. In fact, there is an unlimited supply there. But it has some channels it needs to go through. There are channels of confession. There are channels of denying self, dying to self. In other words, if you're not measuring up, you are failing. You will need to go, the money needs to flow through proper channels. Is there a, is there a, a routing number on your check? <laughs> it has to go through proper channels or it won't get to the right place. It has to. So it's not just, bang, there's the money, write the check, and it's done. No, no, not, not quite. It, it's more complex than that. So the, the channels of dying to self, the channel of support from others in the family. There's a channel of putting off the old man, which is an active, an active, not a passive event, but an active event, and putting on the new man, which is an active procedure. There is a channel of faith. Sometimes you need to believe that what God says is true. When it doesn't feel like it's true. There's the channel of saturation in the word and in prayer. There's the channel of consecration to God. And there's many other channels. That we need to. So we are going to fail. But there's grace. And there's channels of grace flowing. What did you, what that little jingle go? Get under the spout where the glory comes out, right? Something like that. That is, we need to find that spout. If you're on praying ground, you need to be, there is a ground where you can be on praying ground and there's a ground where you are not on praying ground. That's biblical. So there are channels. Faith, faith is not believing in spite of evidence. Faith is obeying in spite of consequence. That's a big difference. Jesus is the reason for the season. He became one of us so we could become one like him. And I like to read one song here. It's it's not my favorite song, but it's one of them. 462, and I'm going to just read it. Um, a John D. Martin song. Familiar with it, but just just think of these words 
and of the message that was proclaimed, the truth that was proclaimed, and let's just see it in a, in a poetic form. Who can fathom the wonder that Jesus the Son chose to humble himself, leave his glory, and come to save a creation that thanked with scorn, spurned his love, mocked his claims from the day he was born. There we clearly have the incarnation. But his love quite amazes the faithful who see what his full incarnation affords you and me. His life as a human has plainly shown God can well live in flesh when the heart is his throne. And what that means there is that a man lived in real flesh, but when God was on the throne, that man could live a godly life. That's basically what that means. How we thank, praise, and bless our great Savior who came, showed us life, shed his blood, and redeemed us from shame. Ascended on high, giving gifts to men, so that the whole world would see all his life lived again. I don't know. Maybe you're following everything. I don't need to explain this. But that's the whole gospel event. And then the gifts to men is given, the Holy Spirit and all the other gifts, so that the world would see Christ's life lived through us. Give us hearts that enthrone him, our Father, we pray. In repentance unfeigned, let us live day by day. In us, by thy spirit, bring forth new birth, that once more men may see Jesus' life lived on earth. And that's the point of the message. May God bless you.